Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by One Room. If you've ever wanted to write a novel or if you're writing one right now and you feel stuck, One Room's experienced coaches can help. One Room's coaches are novelists, they're experienced teachers, they're people who are dedicated to being great mentors. When you join One Room, your coach will take the time to get to know you, craft a writing plan for you, and hold you accountable to your goals. Admission is selective and space is limited. To find out more, visit joinoneroom.com slash novel. Mention the Other People podcast in your application and get $20 off your first month of membership. Once again, that website is joinoneroom.com slash novel. One room. It's coaches for writers. Check it out. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jig, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and it's very good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, i got a great show for you today. Jonathan Franzen is my guest. His most recent novel is called Purity. It is available now in trade paperback from Picador, and it also happens to be the official August selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Now, uh, for those of you out there who are new to the program, and I figure since uh, Jonathan Franzen is the guest, there may be a few of you, I just want to go over some basics very quickly. The Other People Podcast is a weekly program, new episode every Wednesday. You can subscribe for free at iTunes. You can listen online at otherpeople.com. That's otherppl.com. You can also get the app. That's the best way to listen. It's the Other People with Brad Listy app, and it's free. You get it wherever you get your apps. You get the app on your device. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. Uh, it's very user-friendly. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just appear as if by magic. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And then if you want to uh, get access to everything, the full archives, more than 400 episodes and counting, you can sign up for a premium subscription. It's 75 cents a month. It gets you access to everything, including my conversations uh, with writers like George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Hilton Owls, uh, David Shields, Sheila Hetty, Ben Marcus, Ben Laurie, lots of Bens, Ben Fountain, lots of Jonathans, Jonathan Evison, 
So uh, get the app. The app is free. I think that covers it. So uh, for those of you who listen regularly, uh, the podcast continues to be in a state of transition. My family moved a few weeks ago. We then had a family vacation. Uh, Things are in flux. I don't have a dedicated space to record. I'm sitting at my dining room table right now. I'm working on uh, the new garage. We have a garage, and uh, we're in the process of fixing it up so that I can record in there, but it's not done yet. So for now, I have to record at this dining room table whenever I can, which usually means late at night. And uh, I should add that when I talked to Jonathan Franzen for this program, I recorded the interview at this very dining room table. And as the conversation was unfolding, and uh, this is something you can listen for, especially if you listen to the program with headphones. Uh, Towards the end of the hour, uh, as I'm talking to Jonathan Franzen about uh, bird watching, I believe, my dog Walter entered the room and began to drink from his water bowl for approximately 90 seconds. So if you can imagine this scenario, I'm sitting here, I'm at the microphone, I'm wearing headphones, I'm very concentrated, I'm very focused, I'm listening to uh, Jonathan Franzen, and I'm trying to be a proper host. And Walter, who is a French bulldog, and if you know anything about bulldogs, you know this is, these are not quiet breeds. They never enter a room quietly. So Walter enters the room, breathing heavily, and proceeds to drink loudly for about 90 seconds. And uh, he was not within arm's reach. I could not reach him. I didn't want to leave the microphone. I didn't want to interrupt the interview to admit that uh, this was happening. <laughs> So there you have it. I think this marks the first time that Walter has ever appeared on this program. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today, one more time, is Jonathan Franzen. Uh, Just a great thrill to have him here on the program. He's one of our, uh, you know, our finest uh, writers. And uh, Purity is a a terrific book. I really enjoyed it. 
It's available now in trade paperback from Picador. Here he is, folks. This is Jonathan Franzen. I am in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, I'm a resident of Santa Cruz, California, to the extent that I just got a jury duty summons here. Oh, wow. Uh, And I am in the little upstairs room that is a guest room, but is also my home office. Okay, so like, but you you live on both coasts, right? Like, don't you split time, or is it just? Uh, nah, I used to, okay. um, but uh, for family reasons, my my spouse equivalent, Kathy, needs to be in Santa Cruz. Uh, she has a, a mother who's uh, very old and needs care. So now, after going back and forth for many years, um, I took the plunge. I mean, I still have a place in New York, but uh, I, I was there less than a month altogether last year. Well, well at least, I mean, if you've got to be somewhere, uh, Santa Cruz is a pretty no, good exactly. spot. My arm did not take much twisting to get me to relocate here. Well, I, uh, I want to say, like, I did a bunch of prep for this, and... Uh, if that's always a bad it's always bad for me when I do that because you know like if I'm having an author on here who uh you know I feel like is a, a bigger author like I think I'll wind up doing even more and then it gets into my head that you've done a million interviews and that you've <laughs> you've probably been asked everything at this point and there's like nothing I could ask you that you haven't already been asked before uh, no one has actually asked me to describe the room I'm standing in uh, doing this from. So that was we're, we're we're one for one in terms of freshness. Good, good. So uh, you know, I, I want to also say that I'm sort of a weird Franzen reader because prior to reading Purity, I had only read uh, the Krauss Project and How to Be Alone, uh, and I came to and I, I don't know what this is with me, but when it comes to fiction, I especially if there's a lot of noise being made, I, I fear disappointment in fiction more than I fear it in nonfiction. I don't know if that's strange to me or some sort of quirk in my like reading personality, but, um, you may, you may be somebody who cares a lot about fiction. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And I, I picked up purity and I absolutely loved it. And, uh, like the joke that I had in my head as I was reading, I was like, well, this guy, if he keeps going at this, like you have a future, I feel like you have a future in, uh, writing novels. (laughs) Right. When it turns out I actually have a past. Yeah, it really, you're really, uh, it's a really beautiful book. And it's a book, too, that, um, you know, like the best books do, it has a lot on its mind. And it seemed to speak to me in a very immediate way. And I know it's not, you know, it's not an old book. It just came out last year. And, um, you know, but I I was I was reading it in the context of all that has happened in America over the past couple of weeks and all that's just been happening generally. And somehow in in whatever way it, it seemed to speak to that, it seemed to speak to our current political climate. It seemed to speak to, um, like, it seemed to hit a lot of the uh, hot-button issues that have to do with modernity and American political life and global political life. And, um, you know, I guess, like, one of the things that that occurs to me is that, uh, you know, like, to, to put all this into a book and to have characters who have political sentiments and who are expressing political sentiments, like that's a tricky thing to do for an author because you can run into a situation where the reader feels like you are soapboxing or, um, you know, they can feel like you, they can see the puppet strings. And I didn't feel that way with purity. Like, is that something that you really guard against when you get into that mode of writing? Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I, I make a, I feel like you can do art or you can do politics. You can't do both. Um, and, and so, and yet politics 
and increasingly, I have to say, in my lifetime, has been such a, a central feature of American life that I don't want to ignore it. Um, and so the way I try to keep myself honest is to make a make a strong case for that which I oppose. Um, in the previous novel, which you haven't read, but I recommend, um, <laughs> you know, I was determined to be hard on the Democrats and to create at least one sympathetic Republican character uh, because I myself am a liberal Democrat. Um, and I was going to say, you know, if I'm just going to go in there and make the Republicans the bad guys and the liberal Democrats the good guys, it's it's like I failed in one of my primary tasks as a novelist, which is to argue for the thing that isn't politics, which is, in my mind, literature, which is dealing with, which runs toward complexity rather than embracing simplicity. Um, <clears throat> and I, you know, I, the, there's not party politics so much in the new novel, but the internet does appear in there. And I, you know, as you, you have read the Krauss Project, you know I'm skeptical of uh, the utopian claims of Silicon Valley might be a, a gentle way to put it. Um, and so I, you know, I, the fact that it turned out that in a way the internet is the hero of, of the book or a hero of the book, kind of without the internet, the whatever uh, wisdom or change has occurred by the end of the book might not have happened. So it was like, I, uh, yes, so I engage, but I, but I, but I try to write against my own grain, really. Yeah, well, no, there's a line in the book. I, I believe it's the Tom Aberrant character, or it's in the context of his character talking about journalism and how the journalist has to exist at the tension between right and left, and has to like dive into that complexity and try to resolve whatever there is to be resolved there. And that's something that like, really weighs on me, like as a citizen, as a human being, is trying to kind of resolve the tension between the impulse toward individual liberty versus um, the collectivist spirit, that we're all in this together kind of uh, notion. And it's tough for me, you know, it's tough for me to find, like, wh where is the sweet spot? <laughs> well, yeah, I know. Well, especially nowadays, um, I'm just, I've actually haven't quite finished it, but I was reading George Saunders's piece in the New Yorker a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I just uh, I just read that like two days ago. It was great. Yeah, and he he basically um, he, he gets challenged by a Trump supporter who says, um, you know, the, uh, the number of people on welfare has increased thirty percent during Obama's administration. And you know, to his chagrin, he goes home and Google's and finds, well, you know, our, that that fact is sort of true. And then there's this long paragraph where he complicates it. Right. Well, yes, that may be true as a factoid, but it's, it's or true-ish, but it's, um, it, as soon as you wade into the details, it becomes incredibly complicated. And, and, and the, the old school, now romanticized journalist was perhaps at his or her best trying to walk that line between the two sides, trying to be an independent force in society. And one of the things that has happened, um, starting with the rise of polarized reporting on cable TV and then, of course, exploding with, with the Internet, where you can just live in your own world of your own facts, um, has been that that, 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 um, that ambition 
to dwell in the complicated middle has been, you know, maybe not abandoned, but um, has been shown to be unprofitable. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a lot more work, that's for sure. And you have to be willing to live with a lot of uh, uncertainty and complexity. It's just it's a more uncomfortable place to be. Yeah, I mean, and I was also describing... I mean, I uh, I come from a politically very complicated family. I I still don't know what my parents were registered as. I I don't think they were registered in either party, but uh, they I suspect they both voted for Reagan. Um, and yet, uh, in many ways, they were very liberal and had an old school kind of communitarian understanding of the way a society should work. And. Um, and then I went off to this ultra-liberal college where even though I had breathed the air of the late 60s and the, and the mid-70s as a kid and as an adolescent um, and was myself by that point very, very liberal, in fact, maybe even self-identifying as a Marxist, there was something about the piousness of the liberalism at my college that I just found probably because I came from this complicated political background, I found that repellent. And I thought, well, that's not right either. I know I know the conservatives are wrong, but I, you know, the liberals are also somehow wrong. <laughs> Everyone's wrong. <laughs> Everyone's wrong, and so I became a novelist. Yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> really, I mean, that's the, that's the short story of my political life. And, like, do you have a sense, I mean, not to, not to get too far off topic into uh, politics, but it is such a weird time, and... Um, you seem like somebody who's paying attention, at least as much as one can tolerate paying attention to what's happening. But like when you look out at Trump and you see uh, where we are as a country and you look at the, uh, you know, all the violence of the last week with uh, police shootings and uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, like what, what how is this? What's the end game here? Like, is this part of a, a process of us somehow getting better or is this a, just us downward spiraling? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but what interests me is that things seem to have that the level of discourse and the very nature of discourse with these completely self-contained worlds that can't even speak to each other, can't even agree on the facts, that all of this has arisen precisely at the time when According to the optimists in Silicon Valley, we were supposed to be using the Internet to, to share our minds and get to know each other better. It was going to usher in – basically, it was supposed to usher in world peace, um, <laughs> universal world peace. Because all we needed was like for everyone to have an Internet connection, and then everything would be very, very you know, super cool. Yeah. And then it turns out that the Internet is a really, really good tool for ISIS as it was for Al-Qaeda. That's a really, really good tool for uh, a character like Donald Trump, you know, he's, who's a master of Twitter. Right. Um, and uh, I do kind of, you know, I take a certain grim satisfaction in that because I was so annoyed by all of these, you know, Stanford grads and Stanford dropouts thinking, oh, well, you know, we all like each other. We all agree. It's just going to be really cool when, <laughs> when everyone has this capability. It's like, hmm. How's yeah. that working out? Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to um, ask. I want to ask you because, like, this ties into purity, and it ties into the Andreas Wolf character, who is, um, you know, reminiscent of uh, like Julian Assange and Ed Snowden, and um, you know, the kind of celebrity hacktivists or, or whatever. And he, you know, he has a lot of scorn for the internet, despite being a master of it, and sees. I should also say that he's East German, um, 
and he's from the the former East Germany, and he sees a lot of similarities to the communist regime of his youth in cyberculture. And I couldn't help but think of you, and I couldn't. I mean, because I'm aware of uh, you know your feelings on Twitter. Um, like this was, I mean, do you share Andreas Wolf's feelings or is that an exaggeration of how you personally feel? You know, the, I have been asked about that little passage in the book where he talks about the soft totalitarianism of, uh, of the internet. Um, it's interesting. You know, it's not like I sat down to write a book as a package for that message, um, quite the opposite. I, I'd long had the idea of an East German character, um, some kind of dissident character, although whether he was really a dissident is perhaps one of the jokes of the book. But he did, um, he did come of age, uh, uh, and in fact was uh, nearly 30 when the wall came down in Germany. Um, so he's, he, he was very much of the GDR, and the, you know, I had the idea that that's who he was, but I didn't really know anything about life of the GDR. So, although I I really am allergic to doing a lot of research for a novel, I, I think it's better to make things up. I knew so little that I actually had to find some stuff out. And talking to my key sources, um, one of whom is a very good friend of mine, and another is a... a terrific novelist, unfortunately not much translated into English, named Thomas Brusig. Um, talking to them I, and, and, and reading Brusig's work, you realize that what we thought of as life behind the Iron Curtain, which is essentially the life of Orwell's novel 1984, that's not how kids growing up in that country experienced it. There was something, and it was, and and what came through was, you know, yeah, there was there 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 was a tremendous amount of surveillance. The Stasi was an amazing surveillance organism, um, and yes, people were arbitrarily arrested, not arbitrarily sentenced. There were always trials, um, but but it, but but that was kind of happening on the margins. And for for everybody else, what made it totalitarian was you could never escape socialism. It was like that was part of the answer to every question was socialism. And, and, and you could have a life, you could actually have a private life, and you could aspire and you could hope and you could dream and you could have, you know, romantic relationships and grow up and have kids and all of that. But the, the, what you could never get away from was the ideology of the place. And so that, that was an interesting fact. To, to find out um, in the course of my research. And then, of course, I also had chosen to make Andreas a, kind of a, an Internet hero. He's this outlaw hero of the Internet. And it's, it just kind of came out naturally that he would see, he would look around the world we live in today and say, God, this reminds me of something. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's not so, life is not really so bad. It's not... You know, for all the talk about NSA surveillance and all of that, people people don't actually walk around looking over their shoulder particularly. I mean, they're careful with what they say online, um, super careful about what they say online, what they what they allow to, um, you know, present of themselves on Facebook or whatever. But but what 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 really makes it reminiscent of the old 
socialist republic for Andreas is you can't get away from it. Right. It's every pore of your existence now revolves around your smartphone. And 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 the, and the key and he doesn't actually think this thought, but for I mean to me the logical step from there is this is also a bearer of an ideology. It's not like technology is ideology free. There, this is essentially the free market gone absolutely insane, and 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 having finally, after you know a couple of hundred years of of attempts, it's finally found a way to insert itself into the way you think about absolutely everything, right down to how you hail a cab, you know. Yeah. It's, it, every every you, and. <clears throat> And I, I have to say, I am annoyed by the by the libertarianism and by the the embrace of the free market on the part of Silicon Valley. And it seems to me sort of a grotesque joke that it presents itself as this revolutionary force, when in fact it is per- perfecting um, a consumer free market ideology that um, was just like all its life waiting for the internet to come along. Well, and what about you? I mean, because like you know, you talk about how it's inescapable. Yet you strike me as somebody who manages to, to escape it. I like when I picture you, and I could be totally wrong, but it's like I've got this like perception of you that's been gleaned from uh, interviews I've read, my own Twitter feed, mea culpa. <laughs> um, but it's like I'm picturing you. You, you don't have a cell phone. You, you have the USB port or the whatever the internet port in your uh, phone is or in your computer is plugged up, and you're bird watching and you're writing and and you're reading novels like do you escape it or but at the same time to have such a strong critique of it you have to engage with it somewhat right yeah totally i mean i i <laughs> um i have to escape it for four to six hours a day that's all so it's my work computer that doesn't where i you know messed up the ethernet port and removed the wireless card right uh, and I, you know, if I, if I, if I want to waste a day and not do any work, then I'll bring my, my home computer up. It's the laptop. I'll just bring it up and I'll spend all, all day, you know, on the internet. Um, and those days happen. It's, but I, it's like, I know going in, I, I, I'm telling myself, oh, it's because I'm expecting an email. I, I need to reply to in the middle of the day. But really in my heart of hearts, I know there's not going to be any fiction written. <laughs> but, you know, at, at just at whatever two at, at the latest two thirty three in the afternoon, I come home and the first thing I do is sit down and spend the next two or three hours on my computer. And of course, I have a cell phone. Okay, I just turned it off for you. Okay. So, uh, oh yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, there I, I was in meetings all day, so I, you know, it's like there are there are a lot of messages there. And I'm curious what those messages are, and it's going to be fun to open each of those and see what the message is, even if it's something I don't really want to hear. It's still fun, you know, just a little jolt you get. So no, I'm totally. Uh, you know, the, how many waking hours do I have? 16 waking hours. So 10 of my 16 waking hours, I'm living in, in that wired world or wireless world now, I guess. Well, and I feel like, too, you know, because you, and you're not on Twitter. You don't do social media at all. No, I don't do social media just because uh, I, I don't have to. Um, I should stipulate that. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I the publicity that needed to be done uh, for my books to, to kind of get them on the map that had been done before social media existed. So I didn't have to, I was not um, the way so many younger writers now, they just feel compelled. I have to have 
my Facebook page and I have to tweet yeah. just because they've been told that's the only way you're going to get your book out there. I'm well, not so sure I believe that just because I'm a little dubious about how the numbers work on that. But. Yeah, yeah, I know. I like I go I'm I'm like I'm of two minds cuz like I kind of I kind of agree with what you're saying but then I'm also on Twitter and you know checking it way too much and um you know I I feel I feel like I read something uh that you said in an interview about how it's a dangerous mode to be in for an artist where you're constantly in this frame of mind where you feel like you have to self-promote. And I completely agree with that. And, you know, there's all this talk in publishing and, and you say younger authors are doing it. It's not just younger authors. It's authors who don't, who are mid-list or, or worse, you know, who are trying to get out there and, and create a platform. Like platform is sort of the, the loathsome word that's used to describe what, what an author needs in order to, you know, entice publishers to be interested a lot of the time. And, um, you know, so to not need it, to not need to do that, or at least to not feel like one needs to do that, is you're in rare air as a writer of literary no, fiction. No, I, I, I recognize, and and I'm, you know, I don't read the stuff about me online, but I'm told that that is a critique of my position. Well, of course, Franzen can say that he doesn't need that stuff. It's just that, you know, I'm also a human being. I'm also I've been a writer my entire life, and I know that. It's hard to write well, and and that the that you need to be alone. That, that the kind, at least the kind of writing I care about, you know, whether it's which is to say, particularly um, well-written fiction, uh, you that's that's not a team effort, and 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 you can short-circuit that um, that sense you're, you're and you're looking for a sense of deep connection you you invest this incredible single-mindedness and and solitude what you've got to say in the medium of the page and then somebody else consumes that reads that also necessarily reading itself is not much of a group experience either unless you're in grade school <laughs> um, you you consume that in solitude and 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 there's this you know when it works when you've written well and when you have a reader who is responding to it there's this intense sense of personal connection and and that's what makes it all worth it you're connected with another human being um and you know you may even have the hope of connecting with a few human beings when when you're dead um in the in the way that I feel so close to Flannery O'Connor when I'm reading Flannery O'Connor it's like she's speaking soul to soul, even though she's dead. And, and, and the problem with these um, more addictive, constant forms of typically more impromptu and uh, shallow conversation is that a lot of the, that, that urge to connect gets kind of dissipated in these electronic ways. And I, I, I can't see that being good for any writer who's trying to do something good well you know it's funny too and you know i don't want to spend too much time on twitter because i feel like you you know this has been beat to death in the media um but i have to ask you you never you don't even have like an anonymous account you've never like waited in incognito just to like see what it's like you know um i did i did for about two months because of a journalism project i was doing i had a i had it, it was early days of facebook it was 2008 okay. um, i was on facebook briefly and i thought this just seems sort of like a waste of time. Yeah. Um, uh, 
probably because I didn't invest in it deeply enough to reap the rewards of, of that wonderful <laughs> Facebook connectivity. But uh, like, you know, oh, now I'm spending 20 minutes every week uh, sharing things with somebody I last saw in seventh grade and thought I'd never hear from him again and probably, you know, wouldn't have been so bad if I'd never heard from right. him again. <laughs> right. You know, I'm not sure I needed that. As far as Twitter goes, you know, people keep impersonating me. So I've my my main dealings with Twitter have been these periodic requests to please take down the person who is pretending to be me, and so I think finally a year ago, um, my publisher set up, you know, unfortunately the real Jonathan Franzen was already taken, and every other obvious thing was already taken. The, the, those hashtags were you know used, so there is some weird. You know, J. Franz and Real, I don't know what, what it's called, but just to like have it out there that this is the official face, uh, Twitter account and it's inactive. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the extent of my engagement with Twitter. Well, but I you know it also strikes me as somebody who's using Twitter and who, like, I'm, I'm one of those people who sort of like, uh, I follow a ton of people. So I have this, this massive feed of tweets from people I don't know. Um, but it's kind of nice in a weird way. I get like a, a wash of like what the mood is or whatever everyone's chattering about. And it's sure. a, it's a quick way to get like a, a snapshot, you know, of the, of what the, you know, group think, whatever group think is at the moment. And there have been times when you have been the topic because I follow a lot of literary people. And so there's an irony to me for somebody who is social media averse and who doesn't participate, like you have a, an incredible instinct for knowing how to, uh, like dominate it, like you know, like, like you, I, 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 it's I, all I, unintentional. Yeah, you walk. I mean, I don't know if you're walking into these things or if you just have some sort of intuition, but like you can rile people up and like you can get people chattering, and it's the kind of thing where uh, you know I feel like a lot of people are out there like hoping and trying and like tweeting ad nauseum to try to get maybe that kind of uh, attention or to try to get that kind of connectivity and you're not even on the thing and it's happening. I almost wish you could see, I feel like someone should tell you like, by the way, you know, you're trending. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I get, I mostly get the bad news. Uh, you know, someone else is saying you're, you know, whatever, you're a horrible sexist or, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. And then I think, well, boy, am I glad I'm not reading that stuff. But, well, um, yeah, I, mean, I want to ask you about that, like briefly, because it's, uh, you know, it's a thing where I, you know, I'm really not a person who puts a ton of stock in the, especially on Twitter, like Twitter rage just completely makes me glaze over because I, I can't process it. It's too much. It's too fast. It's too emotional. And then it, it's too, um, transitory it's like on to the next as soon as one everyone's angry about one thing one minute and then you know as soon as something else happens everyone flocks to it and uh it's hard for me to take any of it seriously even when maybe uh it's merited so i'm curious to to know i mean as somebody who's been on the receiving end uh, however unwittingly like if you you know even though you might not have been reading it all uh is there anything like publicly that you've said that might have caused one of these uh twitter shitstorms that you look back on and say oh god i, I really walked into it i i've I wish I would have said that differently. Or do you feel like maybe it was all just misconstrued and you don't spend even like uh, hardly five minutes thinking about it? Um, well, I, I have grieved over responses to certain things I've said and written. Um, and, you know, probably thank God that Twitter wasn't around when I uh, offended Oprah Winfrey, but, <laughs> um, 
you know, and I, I have, I have done many mea culpas in terms of how I expressed myself um, and the kinds of things that I just in my free associative way found myself saying to live microphones. But, um, you know, more recently, a little more than a year ago, I had a piece in The New Yorker uh, that was essentially taking for granted that radical climate change is a done deal and saying, well, you know, let's stop pretending that we're going to keep the temperature from rising two degrees Celsius this century. You know, we're going to be damn lucky if we haven't hit that mark by 2030. Like, can we stop pretending and then start talking about what a sensible allocation of resources is um, for all parties, including other animals and plants, biodiversity? Can we, can we have that conversation? And, and, and the, the loud and clear answer was no, we cannot have that conversation. So, you know, I'm hearing back people are calling me a climate change denier. Yeah. Like <laughs> the whole point of the piece was saying it's happening. You know, it's like, and, 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 and the, and the level of stupidity of that characterization, the piece that, you know, where you're, you're getting people who know it from a retweet of a retweet of somebody's out of context trans, uh, uh, you know, 140 character um, little excerpting of somebody else's impartial reading of a text that was complicated and challenging, you know, it's just frustrating and I'd rather not think about it. It's depressing. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, the, um, from where I stand, uh, I also am aware that a lot of other people are frustrated with that level of discourse and that there is still, uh, I want to say a market, but there's still an audience for, um, for more thoughtful writing, for writing that's longer than 140 characters, for writing that actually takes takes up one side of an argument and then really engages with another side of an argument and tries to do something original and in synthesizing the two sides. You know, there are people. There is still a hunger for that, and I don't think it's restricted to people over the age of 40 either. Um, there are a lot of young people who are frustrated too. Uh, because, you know, they have brains and maybe they read a few books when they were kids and thought, well, gosh, this is this is just dumb. What, you know, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a little frustrating. I, I didn't really realize I thought I was looking back when I slapped the title Purity on my unstarted novel some years ago, because I was looking at I was looking at Al Qaeda and I was looking at the Tea Party um, I was looking at the pirate party. I was, I was, I was, I was looking backwards at the rise of this kind of these, these, um, and 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 really, I think it's a development that has been fostered by the structure of the commercial internet that this this abhorrence of the middle ground, this this idea that anything except absolute purity is a betrayal. Um, whether you're a conservative or uh, an Occupy radical or, uh, you know, a, uh, a radical Islam fighter or a radical Internet person, that all of these people have just, like, given up on a notion of some kind of middle ground. Now it turns out, now I'm looking like I was prescient because of, because of this campaign. Well, and I was going to say it. That's what I was saying at the outset is that, you know, I'm reading this book and it's, it's, it's speaking to, it has a real immediate 
it had a real immediate resonance to me to what we're dealing with right now. And, you know, I mean, to... Jim DeMint looks like Churchill compared to <laughs> Donald Trump. You know, and that was just four years ago where you say, oh, my God, the Tea Party. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, you, you said you were talking about the middle ground and the abhorrence that people have for it. And like the phrase that always strikes me is move the middle, you know, like that's really the fight. It's like, where is the middle? Because, you know, you talk to people on the right in the Tea Party or you talk to people in Occupy, in Occupy they both have very different ideas of what the middle might even be, you know, however abhorrent they might see it as. So that's really where the conversation needs to be. Like, where is the middle? Like, we got to move it in some direction. And Yeah. And um, one thing I would note is that um, – I think the left is just as intolerant as the right, mm -hmm. the far left. Uh, and I end up on the receiving end of a lot more um, hate from the left than from the right, I, perhaps because the left bothers to read a novel or something. But, um, you know, I, I, I feel that and it really it's it's upsetting because politically, you know, voting booth wise, I'm on the side of the left, and yet the um, these these kind of you know ideological purity tests uh, that are placed on people that cause cause them to really seriously self-censor and not dare to make anything like a middle of the road argument. Um, I find that really yeah distressing. So I want to shift gears. I want to ask you about uh, celebrity. Because, you know, you, and this is something you touch upon in the book. There's a great line that I'm going to uh, paraphrase horribly, but it's basically talking about the poisonous aspects of celebrity and how much it sucks to be famous. Right. And, you know, to talk about fame in the same breath as, uh, you know, a, a writer of literary fiction uh, in America is, you know, there's a little... Oxymoronic. Yes, exactly. In, but In, in all's view. Yeah, but insofar as one can be a literary celebrity in this country, a writer of, of quote-unquote serious literary fiction, um, you would strike me as, as it, or one of them. And I'm curious to know, like, do you feel that you're a, a celebrity? Do people recognize you on the street? Do you have a sense of being a public person that makes you... You know, when you leave the house, you're thinking, oh, God, what am I going to have to deal with? Like, what's it like for you? It's one of the reasons it's been nice to come to Santa Cruz, because it's a very small pond here, and uh, and people know each other. And so to be recognized in the street, it's no big deal. Everybody gets recognized in the street here. So it, 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 feels, it feels way more comfortable than in New York, where I have to worry about, oh, did I, you know... Um, uh, my hair is bad today. Uh, I'm about to make a first impression on somebody. I'm passing on the sidewalk, and they're going to think, "Oh my God, we knew he was a dork. His hair looks terrible today." You know that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I feel a little. I feel it particularly in New York. Um, I, I, I run into a lot of people in airports for some reason. Well, um, people read on so, planes. You know, it's like it's like one of the last places where people I feel like maybe read uh, for extended periods of time un uninterrupted. But though the internet is now intruding there too. Um, yeah, I've been, I mean, I've been, I've been in the same room with Daniel Craig quite a bit, uh, recently, um, because of this, uh, TV project, uh, based on purity. Uh, and, you know, I asked him, can you ever take the subway? And he sort of hemmed and hawed and said, well, if we're really, if traffic's terrible and we're really late. And then he, you know, describes what he has to do 
to, you know, the way he has to walk and the way he has to pull his hat down, all of this stuff just to get on the subway. And I think, oh, my God, I would hate that. Yeah. I can still ride the subway. Every once in a while, somebody comes up and says, love your work. And, you know, that's a nice day improver right there. Sure. Uh, so no, it's, it's, it really is. I mean, true. Vidal was right. Famous writer is an oxymoron. So um, it's like, but it seems like a comfortable level. Like every once in a while, somebody just coming up and saying, hi, and I liked your book. Like that's, that's nice, but it's, it's, it's really nice. I mean, there was the, there was this time I was eating dinner downtown in New York, um, with a friend and I could feel the woman at the next table. She just kept looking at me, kept looking at me, kept looking at me. And finally they got up to leave and the woman leaned over and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but are you Stephen King? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you said yes. <laughs> uh, well, it puts one in mind of Flannery O'Connor's uh, wonderful response to uh, whether she was related to the much older uh, Irish short story writer, Frank O'Connor. And she just stared at the person and said, I am his mother. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when you were like when you were starting out, I mean, did you did you is this part of your plan? Did you ever think you were going to get to this place where, you know, I want to say the correction sold three million copies, like all of your books collectively have sold millions of copies. You have uh, a very wide readership. You know, when you say something in public, people listen. And uh, did you ever think you would get to this point of influence? Well, I dreamed of it, sure, as a, you know, I, I really was a very self-conscious and very ambitious 22-year-old, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to change the face of American literature. But then I knew, you know, other people I knew also did, so it's not something you truly believe is going to happen. Um, I think I'm a little different from a lot of my writer friends in that uh, I came to literature itself fairly late, uh, which is to say college. And um, I was I was a genre fiction reader, and and it was it, it was always you know when I first formed the ambition to be a writer, it was like oh that would be a great life you know you sit in a study, you have plenty of free time, and you write these books and you make a nice living, you have a nice house, and um, and you know your biggest problem is answering your fan mail. I mean that seems <laughs> and because because to me I was looking at people like Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, I was a huge Tolkien fan as well. I don't know whether he got a lot of fan mail uh, or lived long enough to, to, to truly um, reap the financial rewards of having written those books. But the, that, that to me was what a writer was, and it was um, it was it was a glamorous field. It was exciting. It would be like you'd, you'd have a lot of readers and you'd make a good living. Um, and then you know I. I uh, Literature was something that became filtered into that kind of reading. I was a, I was a tremendous reader as a kid, but I was reading science and I was reading sci-fi and I was reading fantasy, and I, and and reading mysteries, particularly you know just the old-fashioned Agatha Christie kind of mystery. And and so my notion of a writer was formed at at an, at an age, and then I somehow in my foolishness at 22 thought, okay, but I can read the kind of books I've been reading in college and still have that sort of audience, and that was what was what seemed very unrealistic at the time um, and, and continued to seem, it, it became, it came to seem so unrealistic that, that by the time it actually happened with the corrections, it's like, whoa, this is a surprise. Well, and I, I kind of give, I'd given up. I was trying to write those, those, those thrillerish big, 
mass market books with my first two novels, and I'd ended up with this tiny literary audience. And then when I finally tried to write a, a little literary, well, not little, but, you know, small audience literary novel in the corrections, that's the one that, that found an audience. So it was, it, was, it was weird. It was surprising, but, but not unconsonant with my ambitions at the age of 16. Wow. You know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, how, you know, you can't predict it. You know, you can't game it. I've talked about this with endless writers on this show about like what's going to work, what book is going to pop, like what are readers going to respond to? You just never right. know. And then, you know, the thing, the things that you're saying about yourself as a reader, you know, growing up reading genre fiction um, really, you know, hits home with me because one of the things that I kept thinking to myself as I was reading Purity is like, you are so good at plot in a way that writers of literary fiction often are not. And it, it's, uh, it's very impressive to me. It's very, cause I'm a writer who struggles maybe to, to be quite as, uh, as good at spinning a really intricate plot and to keep creating that feeling of uh, surprise, but inevitability. And, um, you know, I, I guess like I'm, because I'm a writer, I'm always trying to kind of game it out and like, imagine you working on the thing and, you know, your, your book has like this kind of digressive feel at times where like, you know, you switch from one character to the next, you're in somebody's head and then suddenly you're in somebody's, somebody else's head and it's taking off in these new directions. And as a reader, you're like, where's he going with this? You know, which is an exciting feeling. And then to have it somehow all come back together again, uh, like it's impressive. How do you do that? Like, is this something that you're making up as you go or are you outlining and it's like kind of preconceived or, uh, well, there was, you know, there was, there was, there was something resembling a plausible proposal for this book, uh, unlike the previous two, The Corrections and Freedom, where the book bore essentially no resemblance to the proposal I'd, I'd had and tried to raise some money on. Um, yeah, this time around, if you read the proposal, you'd say, oh, well, that's kind of, kind of the book he was imagining writing. Um, I did. I did have a very conscious intention of going back and doing something more like the first two novels because I do. I just. I do love plot, um, and I felt like, well, now that I've written these, these, you know, the, the corrections and freedom are plotted, but they're um, they're really just totally character foreground, uh, and 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 I wanted to go back to something where the the plot structure of the book itself carried meaning. And, and felt that I could do it better now because I was, you know, I, would, I was 25 when I wrote my first novel. Um, and I, 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 I knew the moves, sort of. I could, I could kind of do a thriller because I'd read so much genre fiction. Um, but now I, I really wanted, I, I did want to consciously, I consciously wanted to go back and try to do it better. Uh, but, yeah, you know, you you can't if you try to outline the whole thing in advance it's just dead and we've all read those novels that feel like well the outline was followed right down to the last page you have to be open to um well above all you have to have you have to be willing to listen when the pages are telling you that what you were planning to do is simply not working well it makes me think of uh, the andreas wolf epiphany about the internet and how it resembled the uh you know life in east germany like that feels to me like like in hearing you talk about it and then reading it on the page, it feels like something that you sort of discovered in the writing as opposed to, you know, uh, preconceived before you sat down. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and some of that came out of, um, 
when I sat down to write, I felt like well, I have to do something about his career as a leaker, even though I'm not really very interested in leakers. And I and and the notion that this is somehow a book about leakers is it's, no, it's a book about a marriage. Hello, um, but <laughs> and, and and also and also a very funny book, which I think is is like in terms of like public perception. Sometimes with you, I think it gets lost how funny your writing is. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, that's. You got labeled as a serious fiction writer, and that people then take the jump from serious to thinking you're not funny. Um, I always only wanted to be a comic novelist uh, at some level, but um, you know, I, a couple of summers ago when I was working on the Andreas stuff, it was like I, I just start. I was reading. Um, uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm blanking on the, the Microsoft guy. Um, there's Mars off, and then there's um, You Are Not a Gadget. Uh, Jared Lanier, I guess is his name. Jaron Lanier, Jaron Lanier. Um, I was I was reading that stuff, so I I was I had some prompts, and that stuff was in my head. And then I had just finished doing the East German stuff, and it kind of pops in. And then it's you know, it was fresh. It was like oh, I hadn't seen that section coming. That's fun. Um, so you, you try to you try to have a rough outline, building in the possibility of surprising yourself and of of encountering really serious obstacles that require creative solutions. And what about uh, you know to go to touch upon um, you know the success that you've had in, in building a big readership and, and kind of uh, carving out a, a station for yourself uh, in American literature? Like you look back on your childhood reading all this genre fiction, um, you were obviously always bookish. But if you, you know, if I were to talk to people who knew you when you were a teenager uh, and tell them, you know, if I could go back in time and say, you know, he's going to be one of our bigger, our bigger uh, novelists, you know, would people believe that? Is that something that you think people could see in you or you could see in yourself at that age? Well, I was, I was a complete social failure up to the age of 15. And then through some sort of miracle, I ended up with um, friends in high school and I'm almost alone among my writer friends and having had kind of a fun and happy high school experience. Um, I don't know. I think, um, wait, what was the miracle? How did you get the friends? Uh, I tell the story in uh, the discomfort zone, but basically it was through the liberal Christian fellowship I belonged to, um, which, uh, this is a mark that it was the seventies. A lot of cool kids ended up joining that group because <clears throat> it was really light on religion and heavy on personal relationships and service to the poor. And so it was this, this, you know, a lot of really interesting people came to that group who were not interested in the religious part. And those people became my friends. I, by the way, I feel like that, that I feel like the Christian left is sort of a resurgent right now, especially among younger generations. Like I, that's just a sense that I get from the internet. I feel like there's a lot more interest in that. Uh, I don't know if you have a similar feeling if you've, uh, you know, in your meeting with young people or whatever interactions with them. But uh, I do get that sense. Maybe it's a Pope Francis thing too. Like he's kind of he's made like you know the Christian left cool again or something. Maybe yeah. I hadn't I hadn't particularly noticed that, but I, um, you know, I have I I have good relations with a number of people in their twenties, and they it's just could just be random that none of them seems particularly interested in religion. But uh, anyway, uh, we there was we were on some other point. Well, it's just about uh, you. Being... Oh yeah, no, I did, I did the drama teacher at my high school said a nice thing when 
uh, my first novel was published, I went back to the high school to meet with some students, and the drama teacher was there, and he was he had been he was a super cool drama teacher, and all the cool kids were doing drama, and um, some friends and I had written a play and put it up, and he said to me. You know, reading that play, seeing that play, I knew there was a writer somewhere in that group of you. I didn't know which of you it was. Now I see it with you. That was probably the closest that I ever got to hearing what anyone thought of me back then. And particularly, I have to say, one teacher in, in college, my um, my senior year German professor, uh, who, you know, he was a mess. He was a mess of a person in many ways. But he um, he said... You're missing the point if you're, we were reading the German moderns, particularly Kafka, Mann, Rilke. He said, you're missing the point if you don't understand that these were people. Um, and they were people trying to make sense of their lives. And that, that was the life-changing remark a teacher made, which is to say, this is not a game. This is not, and it's not, you know, art for art's sake. There's, you know, the best, the best fiction is driven by some ferocious, thing in a human being um and you know that's and it's and it's a problem i think um i think it's a, i think it's something that's hard for people to understand when you achieve some stature in a field you know you you, you become the figure and, and 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 it becomes hard to remember no that's actually just a person um and uh, it's it's my project in the latter half of my life to remain a person and not become a figure because there are when you get taken that way often enough and you and again not I won't mention any names but you you will meet the writer who it's clear has internalized all of that and now walks around thinking of himself or herself as a figure. So how do you um, how do you combat against that? Like I like uh, let me let me speculate. Um, I mean, obviously, like staying off of the internet and not getting sucked into reading your own press might help. Yeah, um, it does. That but helps. but also, like you know, you, like not living in New York in the epicenter of publishing and, and being in a place like Santa Cruz where you have access to um, real natural beauty. Like you've gotten into bird watching, which I don't. It's not something that you were always doing, right? Like no, no, it it really came out of the sense of now I have some time to enjoy myself when the corrections took off. It was like for the first time in my life, I didn't feel it was absolutely necessary for me to go and work eight hours every day in the office. I could, I could experience joy in something else. Um, so how yeah, did the you, bird watching is part of it? Certainly. How did you get into it? Like, like what, like how does one get into that? Um, it, it, in its own way is not unlike a religion. You tend to be converted by other believers uh, in this case, it was Kathy's sister and brother-in-law who are birders, and they took me out to Central Park and opened my eyes to the world of birds one one spring day in the middle of migration. And once you're aware of this dimension that you've been blind to for 40 plus years, uh, you know the rest is history. I'm now kind of a crazy bird watcher, but I'm still a bad bird watcher. I mean, I'm not I'm not I'm not as bad as I used to be. But I make boneheaded mistakes, and I'll hear a song I've heard a million times I can't identify, and so I, I have to turn to the really good bird and say, what is that, please? And they'll say, you know, that's a toey. That's one of the toey's sounds. And, oh, God, yes, of course. So being bad at something is actually really good, <laughs> or at least not very good at something, not being, by, by no means being the best. Um, you, you go, every time I go out as a bird watcher, I get humbled because I, by, by the 
limits to my skills. Well, listen, um, but you you can't be like a great American novelist and a great birdwatcher. That's just too much for one man to have. Like you got to have you got to have some weaknesses. <laughs> well, there's also the time problem. Yeah, because the really the brilliant birders are out there every day, and I just don't have time for that anymore. But it seems like a meditative thing too. It's like a way of paying attention because you talk about like I you know it seems like the kind of thing I I would like to do. Uh, just being out in nature, like. Being out in life, period. You know, you talk about being in Central Park. That's not probably the first place people would think of to go bird watching. But it turns out there's a ton of birds there that are there all the time, and you're walking through Central Park and you're missing them. And that's kind of a freaky thing to think about. There's these incredible creatures that can fly around, and they're beautiful. And I've probably missed like 200 of them today. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. No, I know it becomes distracting. Actually, I can't if I if I hear something in the background, even in a movie maybe especially in a movie, especially movies which are really careless with their soundtracks and play European bird song over an American scene or vice versa. It becomes actually quite distracting. You, but, you can, and you can differentiate that? You can be like, that's the European bird song. I, I guess you Oh, can. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you see all these European movies and you're hearing, the, you're, you know, a hawk comes along and it, then they play the red-tailed hawk, which is North America only. <laughs> you just kind of laugh. It's like, okay, well, that Eurasian buzzard suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> must must have been talking long distance to some red-tailed hawks in North America <laughs> to make that sound. And has this like expanded out? Like I would imagine that like, you know, if you're a birder that you could easily then get into like butterflies or you could get into like naming all the trees. Like are you like are you getting into that stuff? Just a little bit because if you if you really care about birds, you start caring about their habitat and you start paying attention to, well, what kind of what kind of bush does this bird like? Um, and what kind of tree does this bird like? Uh, and that's particularly critical if you are in the tropics where you have this tremendous diversity and and species have evolved very narrowly to be dependent on, in some cases, just one kind of tree. Um, so, but no, I, I, the, the way it's gone more has I've gotten into bird conservation. I've gotten into um, efforts to to improve the world for birds because I love them and, and they're in trouble. They're in bad trouble. Um, uh, the, um, you know, we're going to lose, we're going to lose so many species this century if we don't step in now and do something. And, um, you know, I never thought of myself as particularly public spirited. I come from a kind of libertarian Swedish American background and, um, that I find myself, I'm on the board of the American Bird Conservancy, and I'm just, you know, really involved in often quite tedious meetings about very fine points of a particular habitat or a particular program. And I never would have seen myself as the per, as the kind of joiner who would be, you know, sitting around trying to do good with a group of people. Um, and the only explanation is that I just love birds so much. And, and when you really start looking at it, you realize, well, you, you have to organize and you have to participate in order to help them. That's a nice thing to do. I don't know if it's a nice thing to do. I mean, you could see it as self-interested. I'm trying to preserve, you know, I have a hobby and I'm trying to ensure that there continues to be, <laughs> you know, right. stuff for me to do as this hobbyist. Um, I can I can lie awake in the middle of the night and think, oh, this is pure selfishness. I'm not really I don't really care about anything but my own pleasure. Well, but, no, it, it makes me think of something um, that I want to say David Foster Wallace once wrote, where he was talking about uh, what was it? It was like um, philanthropy, 
and being a philanthropist, but also knowing that, you know, giving is good for one's health. And so, you know what I'm saying? It became this like circular thing where it's like, yeah, it's actually really just about self-interest because I know that by doing this, even though I'm helping somebody, I'm making myself feel, or I'm making myself healthier. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Dave was particularly caustically self-conscious about that stuff. Yeah. He was always, he was always looking for some proof of, of the existence of goodness. And it was a, <laughs> it was a struggle. Yeah. Because when you really examine it like that, yeah, it, it can seem to reduce to just the pursuit of your own pleasure. Well, you know, and it's like just to um, you know, touch upon him for a moment, because I know like, you know, I want to say there was an interview I read with you where you were talking about American literature and how, you know, sometimes there's writers who exist in packs. You have like the Beats and you have uh, Lost Generation writers. And, you know, when I think of you, um, I think of you kind of uh, on your own a little bit more. I don't see you in, in the context of a pack, but I do when I think of you um, – I always think of Dave, David Foster Wallace. I think of the two of you um, and the friendship that you guys had and the way that you guys, I think, were probably pushing each other as writers and uh, helping each other along. Um, friendly, like, friendly competition, yes, kind of, kind of a fraternal competition and, a, and, and fraternal differentiation, um, you know, writing very, very different kinds of things while fundamentally agreeing on what it was all for, I would describe it as. Um, yeah, no, he was he was as in in many regards as good a friend as I'll ever have. But well, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I have. I want to say I'm sorry for your loss. You know, like he like he's oh, a friend well, of yours, and I can't uh, bring him up without saying that. Oh well, thank you. Um, I do have a you know I have a lot of writer friends. Um, some of them younger, but some in my own generation. I mean, the other the other person I'm really really close to and have been for 25 years is David Means. Um, and uh, and there again, it's sort of a, there's a you know I, I I see the world through a lens of family. It's um, I had a very powerful family full of these powerful characters, and it was a you know it was a it really was formative for me to grow up in that kind of family. So um, I I yes I have friends, but they've in some way, especially the male friends, end up feeling as much like brothers as like friends. That's um, that's good though. We you know I think most people are starved for that. You know they want more of that in their lives. I mean if you've got a lot of it, that's a blessing. Uh, I would be the last to deny that uh, I was a lucky person. Well, what about uh, like are you working on anything new? Do you talk about oh, such things? You know, I have some ideas. You know, I'm working on this TV show, which I, I really don't want to talk about, um, and I've been advised not to talk about. Uh, but but it's an adaptation of Purity. We can at least establish yes, that. it's basically a straightforward adaptation of the novel uh, under the aegis of Showtime. And, um, you know, I, I have my journalism projects, um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking at a piece for the National Geographic about seabirds I'm hoping to do. Uh, and uh, I did have some time this past winter to think about a new novel. It's too early to write it. These, um, I, I just am, you know, I'm dead when I'm done with a novel and I feel like I have nothing left to give and it takes a couple of years to, to restore the batteries. But do you go, uh, do you travel? You, are you a person who likes to travel? I travel for birds. I just got back from Papua New Guinea Oh wow! Um, a couple weeks ago, yeah, which was a birding trip, um, and I try to I try to I try to mix um, the birding with with uh, uh, assignments. I, like I was in Antarctica this past winter, 
And that was a New Yorker assignment, but it was also a chance to hang out with penguins. And um, when it works like that, it, it's good. Um, are, peng- it, wait, are, pe- are penguins the only birds down there? I mean, forgive me for being a complete idiot, but I'm thinking of Antarctica. I can't imagine there's a ton of birds down there. But um, They are the dominant bird down there, but there are others. There's the snow petrel. There are giant petrels. There are... Uh, there's this weird bird called the sheathbill, which is kind of a cross between a pigeon and a vulture, but it's snowy white, um, and it just hangs around at penguin colonies eating, you know, uh, pecking at dead chicks and things like that. Uh, yeah, there are birds down there. A lot of whales, obviously. Um, but anyway, yes, so I, I do travel, but it's a lot of it is bird-driven. But the, the thing about birding is it takes you to places that no one else is going, so uh, I used to head to the church or the museum, and now I head for the sewage treatment facility because that's where the birds are. <laughs> and, and just getting to the sewage treatment facility, it takes you to a part of town you would never, as a tourist, ordinarily go to. What do you like the sewage treatment facility in Santa Cruz, you mean, or just anywhere? Is that like where the birds always hang? Anywhere. I mean, Santa Cruz, it's, um, it's not great habitat, but there are wood ducks, which are an extraordinary duck there year-round. And... Um, but like, uh, the sewage treatment facility for Melbourne, Australia is one of the top 10 birding destinations in the entire world. What is it about the sewage? They just want, they eat? What, what is this? Um, yeah, they, they have, uh, substantially reduced need for really clean water compared to humans. Uh, and, but you know, they're all different levels of ponds and lots of stuff grows in those ponds. And then it, and then it will often run out into a wetland and the wetland then becomes this very rich, full of nutrients from the sewage. And uh, so you get very rich invertebrate life, and it attracts, you know, millions of shorebirds and, and waterbirds. Um, and typically, like in, in Melbourne, my God, it's, it's, this, it's the last remaining undeveloped stretch of that whole coastline. Uh, they set aside a huge area with all different kinds of habitats. You have land birds out there as well. And it's, nobody goes there because it's a sewage treatment area. So what are you out there? And, and you out there another a... thing is you know, birds are, tend to be, they, they don't like, you know, a lot of them like to be by themselves. So they go where people aren't. If they, you know, if there were no Melbourne, they'd be happily downtown. But unfortunately, it's downtown, so they're not there. So are you, are you by yourself on a boat? Like, I'm trying to picture you. Like, how do you get there? You show up in a car or do you, do you actually, like, canoe in there and... You have your your binoculars. It's a car. Oh, it's a car. There, it, they, you know, there are these there are these dirt tracks um, between the, the ponds and the wetlands. Okay. And, uh, yeah, if you know somebody who has a key to it, you go with them, and they get you in, and it's pretty great. Wow. Well, we should wind up though, because I'm I'm hitting my wall in terms of articulateness. Yeah. No. No. I am. I am. We're right there, and I'm extremely grateful for the time, and uh, really appreciate it. And congratulations on Purity and uh, its paperback release. And I wish you well uh, on whatever comes next. Thanks. And this was this really was, as you promised, a real conversation. So that was fun. Thanks a lot. All right, folks. There you go. That is Jonathan Franzen, his novel Purity, available now in trade paperback from Picador. It is the official August pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This episode has been brought to you by One Room. The writing coach is over at One Room. If you need some help with your writing, visit joinoneroom.com slash novel. Get $20 off your first month of membership when you mention the Other People podcast. That's joinoneroom.com slash novel. 
Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Best way to listen. It's free. Most recent 50 episodes, free. Sign up for premium, not free. Good way to support the show. Would appreciate it if you did that. If you would like to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. I should also add that uh, I'm way behind on email. So if you have written to me, please know that I have received your letter. I just uh, haven't had a chance to uh, collect myself and properly respond. Bear with me. I'm in flux. So yeah, it's, it's going to work out though. The new garage, there's going to be a new garage. It's going to be better than the old garage once it's done. That's what's, that's basically the big update. But it's not done yet. It's going to be a few weeks, I'm guessing. These things always take longer. But like we're getting a proper situation figured out here. There's going to be like drywall. It's not going to be as dusty. It won't be like Black Widow spiders. <laughs> it's going to lose a lot of its old charm, but uh, in its place. A new kind of charm will emerge, I'm sure. Very excited about that. Please remember that T.S. Eliot missed uh, military service in World, World War I due to a hernia and that Ezra Pound had astigmatism. That is all for now. Many thanks to Jonathan Franzen one more time for uh, taking the time to talk to me. Go get his novel Purity out there now in trade paperback. It's good to be talking to you guys again. I pre-recorded the last four or five episodes, so I have not sat here and done a show in about a month. Feels good to be back, even though uh, I'm, you know, crouched over a microphone at my dining room table trying not to wake up my children. (laughs) 